for Paris virus, as we know, there's no silver bullet. There's no single thing that you do and you're going to take care of it. But there is a combination of strategies and solutions that you implement and consistently you decrease the production losses and you get better, right? You, you manage the, the infection. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode sponsored highlight is about NutriQuest. NutriQuest delivers targeted breakthrough solutions to animal producers via nutritional and non-nutritional products, services, and technologies. At NutriQuest, we believe in ingenuity inspired by service and that our success comes from helping producers realize improved profitability through optimized technology and efficient operation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Swine It podcast. I'm your host, Laura Greiner, and with me today, I have Dr. Daniel Linhares from Iowa State's College of Veterinary Medicine. How are you doing today? Hi, Laura. Great. Great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. We're glad to have you on today. Uh, Daniel, for people in our audience who may not be familiar with you, would you mind just sharing a little bit of your background? I am, I'm originally from Brazil. That's where I got my a veterinary degree and an MBA uh, and uh, had the opportunity to spend eight years working in the swine industry in technical services, production, big production, biosecurity, health assurance, some other roles. but. Uh, but then went on for uh, graduate education at the University of Minnesota, worked with a great, great team over there, Dr. Mozzi, Tore Morel, uh, Bob, Bob Morrison, Scott D, and, and others. Uh, and so got some education on veterinary population medicine, then went back to, to Brazil uh, to work with AgroCetis PIC for, for a couple more years, and then uh, I, I, I had the opportunity and joined the Iowa State team here. So today I'm at the College of Veterinary Medicine, serve as an associate professor and director of graduate education and uh, really working back with the, with the field, right, with the swine veterinarians, producers on uh, applied uh, work towards helping them to, I mean, generating data and helping them make decisions to improve swine health and, and productivity. A lot of that work has to do with the uh, first virus, which is the topic here today, right? Uh, 
uh, Laura, so excited uh, to talk with you about that. Yeah, I'm very excited too. I think PERS obviously continues to be a disease, particularly in the United States, that that challenges our producers and it, it is a huge economic constraint um, for swine production, not just here in the US, but elsewhere as well. Um, so I think today will be a really good discussion on things we can do with monitoring of PERS, how we control it and how we eliminate it. So I think let's just start maybe first with how would you monitor PERS? You know, what would be our typical monitoring strategies? Yeah, good. Good question, and I think the the first thing to remind, of course, is that when we talk about monitoring PERS, you gotta understand what's the purpose, right? What's the what's the intent? And so, when thinking about south farms specifically, there are at least a couple common scenarios for monitoring. One is to I'm I'm negative or I'm stable, and I want to early detect a PERS outbreak. Uh, for for that scenario, it's really a combination of things that people can do. Of course, watching clinical signs, right? Birds, especially the wild type ones, they are pretty hard on pigs. So you'll notice that sows go off feed. Piglets are not born uh, as as healthy as and as active as uh, they typically are. And uh, also, and related to that, is a, a typical birds outbreak is hard on uh, swine health and productivity. So if you're monitoring closely things like, uh, we talked about sows of feed, but on top of that, there is a number of aborts per week, pre-weaning mortality, neonatal losses, right? If you combine mummies and stillbirths, and uh, just the number of pigs that you win per week, those are pretty good indicators. Typically, not always, but most of the time when you have an outbreak, you'll see a change in the clinical, clinical picture. And, reflect which reflects the productivity outcomes so that's one way to do it and you can do it pretty much real time or daily if you train your farm staff and you have a way to capture that uh, data from your record keeping system and of course a diagnostic monitoring people don't do that every day people but you know you could that there today with population-based uh, samples such as processing fluids that you collect from day two, three, all the way to day five post um, birth, uh, submit that for, for, for PCR testing, right? To get fragments of the virus uh, uh, RNA in the, in the sample. That's pretty efficient and sensitive way to, to detect the virus in the population. You can bleed pigs if you want to, but also you can collect oral fluids uh, or family oral fluids from the leaders to screen the herds for any sign, early signs of uh, viral virus activity. That's for that first category, right? To detect virus, early detect uh, PERS outbreaks. And uh, in the second uh, common scenario where people want to establish their monitoring surveillance system is for herds that are undergoing elimination, right? Those herds, I already got a, what, what do I do post-break to determine when can I kind of return my, my activities, when can I bring in back my guilds or return pig and people flow as it was before. And in that scenario, clinical signs and productivity are less reliable because now you have a lot of herd immunity and usually the herds recover clinically and recover the numbers of productivity way sooner than they clear the virus itself. So monitoring just for 
for the clinical signs and production numbers in herds that are undergoing elimination, it's a poor real uh, uh, predictor of virus activity. It's still good, right? You still want to recover as soon as you can, but do not assume that your herd is back to normal in terms of clinical terms or productivity terms that you got rid of the virus. You really need diagnostics to do that. And so a couple of different scenarios there. If the herd is attempting to control the virus and reach stability and kind of, in other words, produce uh, still negative pigs for the most part, but be okay if there is some low prevalence uh, scenarios here and there. In that scenario, processing fluids or family oral fluid-based sampling is maybe all, all you need in uh, every week or, or every other week with some six to eight weeks of consecutive negative results where you're good to go back to control stage, you'd say, right? For those herds that are attempting elimination, then you need to be more aggressive than that, right? Think about the multiply multipliers that cannot afford to be false negative, right? They, they're, if they're negative, they gotta be sure that they are negative. They don't wanna leak positive pigs. So that's when you, you wanna be uh, 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 more aggressive in terms of uh, how frequently and how intensively you uh, screen that population for PERS virus. You can still use processing fluids in that two to five days of age as a good screening tool. When, once you have some eight to nine consecutive neg uh, negative weeks of negative results, then you really want to double check your due to win piglet population, family oral fluids or bleed pigs, whatever you want, or oral fluids down the nursery, but you want to double check if you're really winning those negative pigs. Long answer, but different scenarios try to cover a little bit of, it, of, of each scenario that that uh, we typically deal with. Mm -hmm. And I think those are really good, you know, certainly watching for clinical signs when you're in a, a negative herd or a, a herd that's not currently PERS active. It, it can be a challenge and so making sure your farm staff knows what's normal and what's abnormal. Um, I've been in situations where something just feels off right? And, and they can't quite put their finger on it yet, but, you know, maybe it's flu, maybe it's something else. Um, and they get that, that diagnostic set going very quickly and they're able to catch the breaks actually very, very early. And the whole purpose of catching a break early is just to try to control it, right? And try to help the pigs that are coming out of that sow farm have a better chance of survivability. So, I think that's important for our, our audience to think about is it's not just spending money to say once a month I'm negative or positive. It's really about trying to reduce the mortality and stay economical. Yeah. One difficulty for those herds that are undergoing elimination, we talked about the importance of being aggressive in sampling and intensive sampling, right? And so one of the problems with that is, is budget. And then the, one of the questions is, how about pooling? Can I pull, should I pull, should I not? And so we've done a lot of works and the people from Minnesota too have done a lot of studies with uh, pooling samples. And uh, one common finding that we've been consistently finding here, they've uh, been finding there too with the uh, work by uh, Dr. Carlos Villalta was, is that 
I think that we here in the swine industry, at least here in the US, we underutilize pooling. So running, looking at field data or simulation data, it's always a, a better idea to, uh, so if you have, for example, a fixed budget, I, I wanna run three PCRs. Let's get at this one example where I wanna run three PCRs to cover my week. Should I run three samples? Should I, should I collect uh, nine samples and running pools of three or and, right or 15 samples in, in pools of five, so on, so forth, pools of 10, pools of 20. And consistently, at least up to pools of uh, uh, one to 20, it's always better to use that same budget, fixed budget and, and cover as many animals and room spaces, air spaces as you can, and then pull. Even if you go all the way to one to 20, then just get those three PCRs and run uh, three blood samples or three family oral fluids or three or three processing fluids from individual individual leaders, right? It's always 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 better to to pull in our in our hands. So it's um it's one opportunity in the industry, I think, to better utilize the pool in in the sense that uh, it's not just pulling per se; it's pulling for uh, increasing the coverage of animals that that you include in that in that sample. I think that's an interesting comment because that's one that I can remember having a lot of discussion around is pooling is great because obviously we can save money and sample more animals, but it was always that discussion of, well, what is that pool? Is it one to five? You know, can I put five samples in one pool? Can I do 10? And then there was always that discussion of, well, what if it's just one pig out of this number of samples and I'm pooling, can I detect that positive pig in that pool of, of sample. And so what I'm hearing you say today is one to 20 should be able to catch catch our positive results. Is that correct? Yeah, we had a graduate student here. He's really good with numbers and probability. If you're going to a casino, he's the one that you want to bring with. His, uh, his name is Henry. Uh, I was a Mackie and he run uh, some probability numbers here, simple, uh, I wouldn't say simple, but math-derived uh, uh, um, solutions based on real field data. And uh, these two things happen when you pull samples. One is you potentially dilute the ones that are, the few that are positive with the ones that are negative. But the other, on the other side, like you said, if I'm increasing more, in, uh, incorporating more samples into my, in, into my pool, I'm also exponentially uh, increasing my probability of including a positive sample in my sample, right? And considering that the PCR is really sensitive in the way that it detects just a few particles uh, in in in, uh, in in thousands of other you know diluted in, in diluted matrices, you at the end of the day, the numbers show that you do uh, detect more. Uh, 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 frequently, right? The probability of detection really increases and when you pull to represent more samples, more crates, more, more rooms in that, in that sample. Very interesting. And the other thing I heard you say was that really between oral fluids, blood, or processing fluids, we can do the same ratio and, and be successful. Is, is that correct? Am I understanding that one as well? 
Yes, and being conservative, because though that, that uh, 1 to 20 number is for uh, oral fluids, which from all of those sample types are the ones that have generally, generally, if you look at the VDL, the veterinary diagnostic lab submissions is the one that have, has the higher CT value. So the more, the less positive, I would say, sample. So even if we think with uh, oral fluids or family oral fluids, pulling all the way to 1 to 20 is 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 a is a good approach if you increase your coverage. If you go to serum, you uh, usually the CTs are are lower, meaning there is more virus, so it can be even more aggressive than than one to one to one to twenty. And that that's where we didn't run these the numbers from Carlos Villalta from University of Minnesota. He he ran all the way to one to one twenty, and he found really good results all, all the way through with. Uh, serum samples of course nobody's going to collect that many serum samples right to run several pools of 120 but it does demonstrate that we underutilize pools sometimes we pose in one of three or five and we are uh, nervous with that right but we it's it's all right it, it, especially especially if you're monitoring continuously over time it's not just one sampling right if you're do, doing that pooling uh, repeatedly over time, even if you miss one, one time, about the next one and the next one. So it's probability, uh, a, a combination of probabilities, right? Your binomial distribution with several uh, attempts. So the probability of being of missing the, the the positive several times, it's just not not very high. Sure, sure. That's very good. The other thing I caught in that conversation was really about when you were talking about testing for elimination. And first you talked about, well, we'll test processing fluids. And then when we get so many weeks in a row of negative processing fluids, then we're going to test the weaned pig population. And I think that's important. Um, I think some of our swine veterinarians probably understand that, but maybe some of the other um, audience doesn't quite understand why why would I switch and test a wean pig towards the end of an elimination test? Yeah, what we have seen, and that's not, I won't say that that happens in all the herds, but that's not rare, a rare finding, is a herd that tests negative for six, eight, sometimes even much longer than that, consecutive weeks negative on, uh, on processing fluids. But then if you keep testing and if, if, if you keep looking, you find uh, some leaders that are are positive down uh, at the, by the time that they are weaned, right? And so if we think about it, there's a lot of things that happen between that processing time and the weaning time, right? Pigs, pigs move, people move. There's, you know, several interventions that you can think about where you're picking up pigs and, and moving them around. So with, with that uh, pig movement and people movement, we create opportunities for the virus to jump from one litter to the next or from one pig to the next, from one room to the next. So the final product from the south farms is uh, are, are the wind pig population. So those are the ones that we ultimately need to, to test to, to uh, uh, gain confidence that the south farm is truly producing the, the negative status piglet so that's that's why we need to check their status at the end there may be some changes we've seen that in in a, in a, like i said several herds not all the herds but there are 
several examples of hers that may be negative at processing fluids time, but at the winning time, gotta, gotta double check. Because if you think about the processing fluid testing, it's a testicles and tails, and uh, there's spurs virus replication in, testicle, in, in, in testicles, it's certainly in uh, macrophages in blood. So if you think about the tail, there's not a lot of uh, uh, virus replication kind of sites there, right? So it's a poor sample, especially if you do it right, the tails come dry, they, they, they don't come dripping in, in blood. So the processing fluids are largely a sample, uh, a specimen that tests the males, not the females. And in low prevalence scenarios, it may be just for by, by chance that you're uh, uh, low prevalence, right? You have just a few piglets that are positive. They may they have a you have a 50 50 percent chance of them being females or, or males. And so uh, you always need to check that status at the winning just to make sure, especially if you're a multiplier. If you're a commercial herd and you know there's no uh, a big changes in management plan or or big flow if you are low prevalence versus stable versus completely negative, it may not matter. But if you're a multiplier, it matters a lot, especially to your clients, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really a, a good point that you bring home is that understanding the process in which a herd clears the virus. And, and I know we all talk about 26-week elimination programs and and different things before we reintroduce animals. And it was something that I saw back in my work many, many years ago now where we were doing blood samples from pigs that we infected with PERS. And mm -hmm. it amazed me that I could have a pig that was negative, multiple bleeds, and then all of a sudden show up with this low level of virus and then go back to negative. And it's just the nature of the virus. And so absolutely from a multiplication standpoint, it's a, it's a necessity, it's not an option to make sure that we've we've successfully cleared that virus um, to sell to other populations. The other thing that you mentioned, um, I've heard you use a di couple of different terms, you know, per stable control. Uh, I know um, American Association of Swine Vets has a category system or a classification system. Before we talk about control strategies and elimination strategies, could you just briefly um, talk on those categories and what they mean? Let's start from backwards, right from the status four, which is the naive. Naive, what does a naive population mean or negative? Those are the same, they use inter interchangeably in that the classification, negative and naive. Uh, it, it means that the, the population is completely free of the virus. There is no evidence of virus circulation. There is no evidence of antibodies against first virus. So any, any animal should be ELISA negative, PCR negative. One step before that is the provisional negative status, which is the status three. And what does what that means is there is some herd immunity in the population. So the animals will likely test ELISA positive. It may not be, but at the population level, there are certainly some that are ELISA positive. However, there is no animal expected to be PCR positive. So there is no active virus circulation. So previous, previously exposed, then immunity came in, there is antibody positive, but no virus circulation. 
the status previous to provisional negative is your stable, right? And what does a stable mean? A stable uh, means that there is, there's still, now, now all, all the previous status will be all antibody positive. So in terms of uh, virus circulation, stable means that there is no evidence that the herd is producing first negative piglets at winning, right? So it's very different than saying that there is no virus at all. There is, it's, uh, uh, it, it is a, a, a generally accepted that those herds have some virus circulation in the south herd, the south, right? So if you do a deep tonsil scraping, for example, or biopsy, you may find the virus there. However, this virus is not transmitting and it's not circulating in the wind piglet population. You're consistently producing PCR negative pigs at winning. The status prior to stable is your positive unstable. So you're, you're producing PCR positive pig piglets, likely seen a, a clinical signs. And uh, so it's like the name suggests, un unstable. That was the, the, AA, the, statu, the classification published by Dr. Holtkamp and collaborators back in 2011, right? By the American Association of Swine Vets. And uh, this later this, um, uh, this semester here, this fall in 2021, uh, it's going to be published. It's already peer reviewed and accepted. Uh, the JSHEP is going to publish this uh, review of that. Uh, classification system by the same uh, 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 lead author, Dr. Holt Camp, and uh, so so there will be some changes coming coming up, but the changes don't uh, they they keep those terminologies the meaning of the of those of all those terminologies. So a positive unstable is still unstable, stable is still stable, and then you have provisional negative and uh, and naive. Perfect. We'll have to keep our eyes open for for that publication. So that'll come through Jay Schaff and that'll be Holt Camp at all um, yeah. publishing that this fall. That's wonderful. So let's talk a little bit now. Um, okay, we found our herd is positive. How do we control? What are we, what are we looking at for controlling PERS and what would be some strategies? Yeah, so for, for PERS virus, as we know, there's no silver bullet. There's no single thing that you do and you're gonna take care of it. But having said that, there is a combination of, uh, of strategies and solutions that you implement and consistently you decrease the production losses and you get better, right? You, you manage the, the infection. And I would think that, uh, I think that the single most effective thing that you do with your herd is around what you do with the guilt, with the incoming guilds. Because you have, if you imagine you, you have a purse uh, outbreak, you have a herd on fire, and if you keep adding uh, guilds in the uh, either negative guilds or guilds that are replicating the virus, it's you're adding wood to that fire, and that fire is never going to stop, right? So you gotta you gotta bring that that fire down, and uh, one of the things to do it, and in my mind again, it's one of the single most important thing is what you do with the guild in terms of guild flow and the immune status for the guild. So if you have a herd that's actively shedding a virus, in other words, positive, unstable, uh, 
you don't want to bring guilds in. If you have two, those guilds uh, need to, to be previously immunized and non-shedding non anymore. So that means that you've got to expose those guilds to your to any live uh, virus, either the virus infecting the herd, the live, the wild type virus or uh, attenuated uh, vaccine virus. You got to do that, what, some 90 days, two to three months, better three than two uh, ahead of uh, bringing them to the herd. So giving them enough time to develop that protective immune response and, and clearing the, the infection. So when they come to the herd, if they have contact, if they're exposed with the virus, they may get infected, but the viremia is going to be short-lived and they're not going to be uh, 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 ecologically, say, uh, important source of, of uh, virus transmission in the herd. Then you have decisions around what to do with the breeding herd, with the sows. And uh, again, depends on what your goal is, if it's to eliminate or live with the virus at low prevalence and kind of control the infection. So most people we, we talk with here in the interact here in the US, they, they do one of these two things. One, they expose all the sows and guilds at one given point in time to uh, a live replicating virus and close the herd, meaning inter interrupt in replacement animal introduction for a period of time until there is evidence of no more virus circulation, right? That's called the herd closure and a, a, a whole herd exposure approach. That's one option. The other option that we see people uh, implementing a lot, especially in those areas, that you're likely going to be continuously exposed to outside viruses, right? To wild type viruses, to lateral introduction is people have been using some sort of ongoing vaccination program. Call that a quarterly vaccination program or vaccination every three to four to five months and with an attempt to keep herd immunity high. So when you have uh, uh, contact or exposure to the wild type, now you are uh, less likely to transmit the wild type, right? And trying to replace the attenuated virus in the herd. And regardless of the scenario, if it's control with or, 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 or elimination, another key point in our opinion is around the biomanagement and biocontainment strategies within the herd. So what are you doing to prevent, especially towards, I want to say the end, but after week 20 to week 30 after the outbreak, what are you doing where, when prevalence is likely low? So easy to miss if you're not really, really uh, sampling hard enough is what, what are you doing to prevent spillover of the virus from one room to the next and to the next and so keep the virus circulating in the herd? Right, we know that this virus has, and some strains better than others, have the ability to sustain prevalence at very low scenario for a long period of time. So those biosecurity slash biocontainment practices within the herd to spread further, to avoid further spread, are are important. Right, things like what what to do with your employees. We know that they have to transition between the ferrying rooms, but simple things like there are some herds that use dedicated 
uh, coveralls or change gloves or if you can not all herds have that but if you can at least wash your hands just think like you're in a hospital going from room to room you're gonna have some uh measure to uh, to avoid pathogen spread right the herd it's not not different so some bio bio management practices to avoid virus spread those are those can make a lot of difference yeah especially when you're starting to do what you call that rollover phase where you have negative guilt so if you're going the route where you're letting the the virus clear itself out of a farm and you're bringing in those new guilt i can remember having you know completely different sets of processing equipment and you know, different boots and we'd have a, a line drawn on the floor. This was the negative PERS negative side of the farm and this was Very the cool. PERS stable, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the other thing, we talk a lot about sows and gilts and reproduction, but grow finished pigs can get PERS too. So how do you talk about control or management of a PERS break in a grow finish barn? Before talking about control, just a, a quick glance here on the uh, ecology of the virus in that population. We've done some studies here uh, 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 in the recent years on the dynamics of virus detection, first virus detection over time in those growing pig populations. And Dr. Cesar Mora's uh, PhD thesis, today's is with uh, yeah, Iowa Select folks, but we fought, Cesar followed uh, close to 100 batches of uh, grow finished pigs and monitored what happened with those over time and what happened with those if you vaccinate or not and monitored um, impacting mortality, average daily gain, that type of stuff. And in summary, uh, if you were raising pigs in high dense areas, right, and not talk, only talking about uh, Iowa and Minnesota, also in North Carolina, uh, the question is not if the pigs are gonna get infected. In a lot of times, in some 90% or more of the situation is when they're gonna get infected because most of those big batches, at least the ones that we monitor, they, they are exposed to the wild type. And there are two things that are important there. One, that will be, have implications on your control decisions. Once, one is timing of infection. It makes a lot of difference in terms of growth performance if those pigs, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. If, if the pigs got infected early on in the nursery versus late in the nursery or early finisher versus late in the finisher, the earlier you get infected or expose those pigs with wild type, the, high, the, the worse the growth performance of those pigs, right? That's, that's one important point, which is timing of infection. And the other one is diversity genetic diverse, diversity of wild type detection in those piglets, in those pig populations. So it makes a lot of difference if, the, if there is one wild type circulating or one dominant strain versus over growth, the growth period, period versus more than one, two, three, we found two, three, four, five types of virus being detected. So I think, uh, we, we can't treat the growth finish population as they are already positive and categorize first as just yes or no or, or positive or not positive. It's, there's a lot of gray and a lot of subclassifications there. When did they get exposed? How many virus, which strain, 
what's the di genetic diversity that all that matters for if you're concerned about mortality average daily gain we didn't look much at feed efficiency but i wouldn't be surprised if there is an impact there too and so at the end of the day uh in our mind what we really want is especially if you're in a high dense area where the question is not when but it, it's not if is when you're going to get exposed is you want to get the attenuated virus ahead of the wild type right you want to build that protective immunity ahead of the challenge and the and you, we see that with experimental uh, uh, studies as well as field studies if you are ahead of the wild type challenge you can expect more of the vaccine of course if you vaccinate with the wild type or really close to the wild type challenge you can expect some but but not the full uh, protection that the vaccine that the vaccines uh, can can offer so gotta understand what happening in in, in the flow that you're concerned with and try to get that immunity uh, ahead of the challenge and also don't rely 100% only on the vaccine right if we know that diversity and timing of infection matters do whatever you can to delay that exposure and to minimize that exposure right so biosecurity uh, as much as we talk about the importance of biosecurity for the south farms as we should we also need to bring some of those south farm biosecurity principles back to grow finish showering 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 out for example and think about and not saying that we can't share labor sometimes it's really it's an economic decision we have to but back to your example with processing carts right what can we do to add layers of biosecurity protection and and downtime and change clothes and showering shower out simple things that uh that are effective to delay the exposure to wild type and reduce the diversity. You may already be positive, but you're not positive for all the viruses circulating in that region, right? Right, right. That's very important. Well, as we kind of wrap up here, um, I just want to have you touch base just on a, a, a statement that you have called the Next Gen Regional Control Program. Can you talk just briefly about what that is and what that looks like? Yeah, so we have a graduate student here. His name is Edison Magalhães, and he's working with this, what uh, he's calling the Next Generation Regional Control Programs. And what, what those consist of is, well, if we just back a, a little bit on, uh, I think it was always started, as I can remember, with uh, 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 Dr. Bob Morrison in the, I would say, 2003, four around there maybe 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 a little bit later but so those regional programs that started in the early early to mid 2000s and they just disseminated in the US there were to, to the best of my knowledge some 70 or more regional programs but then those had a good traction they did good they they were good for that science of collaboration that led to other projects right but then over time they 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 faded and there's not many, not many pretty active programs anymore. And uh, one of the reasons we think of why those programs didn't keep evolving is you had a lot of decision makers on the table, sometimes a regional program with 50, 60, 70 producers. And how do you align expectations if you're controlling or eliminating? 
how do you align actions? What are you going to do if you test positive or right? And and so at that time, people were still bleeding a lot of pigs, didn't use a lot population-based sampling that allows more frequent testing. So when you learn that a farm broke, it was already too late for any action, right? And so today, this next generation programs is it's all based on trying to establish uh, a region with the fewer decision makers. We're talking about two, three decision makers on the table enough, but still making decisions for most of the sites in the region is uh, agreeing upon some decision trees of how, what, what specifically are you gonna do to the south farm break or if a, a growth finish turn, turns positive. So we've got to agree upon a minimum monitoring frequency. South farms, for example, you can do that weekly, grow finish every three, four weeks may be enough, but still you've got to have some frequency of, of testing. And then on top of the testing is what are you going to do if they test positive? Because eventually they are. And so you have uh, established some decision trees that are more aggressive when uh, the prevalence of the region is low, less aggressive when everybody's positive. But if you think about when the prevalence is of the region is low and you have a site turning positive, you gotta be aggressive. Otherwise that virus is gonna spread around, right? So gotta list and talk, agree upon with the producers on what are you willing to do? Are you willing to, to trade finishers? Are you willing to mass vaccinate the surrounding sites? Are you willing to just list, just list the, the the biosecurity biocontainment immune management solutions let's let's list them on the table and now let's assign each scenario of high medium low prevalence what are we going to do with the south farms with the nurseries with the finishers when they break we're going to monitor so that all calls for a good digital uh, package to be able to real time or as close as real time as possible monitor and everybody be on the same page on what's the status of each herd, the product productivity um, monitoring, the diagnostic monitoring, the clinical science monitoring, and then one side pops positive or suspect, what are, what are we gonna do? So we don't have to decide anymore because it's already decided, it's a matter of now implementing. And we think that uh, that's that's one one way to, to approach regional 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 programs especially in those regions where you have a few decision makers on the table. Uh, hard to do in the heart of Iowa, for example, where you would have several decision makers, but if you were uh, approach from transitional regions, you could uh, uh, start implementing those and, and keep growing that, that module, right? That bubble over, over time with, uh, with that sort of uh, decision tree based approach. So we're excited about that. And, We'll keep keep working on those uh, concepts. I think that's really exciting. I can remember mapping some of that out for our regional control program many, many years ago. And um, it, a lot of the data that Dr. Morrison shared looked very successful and positive back then. So look forward to seeing the next generation of that coming forward and, and making a difference. It is time to our famous three. Since 1971, Zinpro Corporation has focused on one thing, trace mineral nutrition. As the most research-proven organic feed trace mineral products in the industry, 
Zin Pro Performance Minerals deliver performance and profitability to swine operations around the globe. To know more, go to zinpro.com. Since 1970, Minitube has been at the forefront of assisted reproduction technologies, setting worldwide standards in reproductive technology and giving peace of mind to producers. Offering a full range of products and services, Minitube can increase the efficiency and reproductive health of swine operations. From the boar stud to the sow farm, learn more at Minitube.com. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. So as we wrap up, um, we'd like to ask our uh, guest speaker just a couple of just general questions. One of the first questions we like to ask is, what's your go-to swine resource? There are many resources uh, uh, out there, right? They really like the diseases of swine. I know that most of your audience is familiar with that book, but I, I also like the the, the Brazilian version of, of that book, which is different editors, different different authors, but just be, use the same name, um, you know, of course, in Portuguese. But, and the reason I like that is it's written for the typical farm manager and the supervisors and people f- uh, on, on boots on the ground. So as a simple, really simple, straightforward language and a lot of pictures, a lot of images, a lot of flow charts. So I think that's pretty uh, handy for communicating with uh, people from from the field. So I'll, I'll have those two if I can. Absolutely, that's fine. Um, how about something that you're interested in or that you would recommend to our audience that maybe isn't related to swine in terms of a, a resource or a book that you, you've enjoyed? I, I, I like to kind of stay tuned uh, on uh, what's going on around around the world, right? So I, I follow the the economist. I think they have uh, really good uh, summaries daily, weekly, uh, monthly, and uh, I, I like to run, for example. So I like that they have all these stories narrated, so I can have it on my my phone and and go. A lot of times I use I, I listen to music, but sometimes, right for longer runs, it's good to kind of uh, multitask and and pick up on what what's going on. So I. I really like their editor, uh, editorial and and uh, their summary of what's going on around the, the globe. Very good. Well, the last question we have for you today is if you think about people in your profession that you identify as successful, what would be a common personal characteristic or trait that you think they possess that has helped them become successful? We think about uh, there are a lot of successful people with different traits, right? I don't think there is one recipe for only one recipe for success. But if I think about something, Laura, I would say that I would combine curiosity with uh, with drive, right? So it's not only digging what's going on and go on your own, uh, study, search the literature, go to the blackboard and kind of really think through the problem. It's also what you're going to do about it. So that comes that drive uh, characteristic, which is go get things done. Go go uh, do uh, above just and beyond just thinking is what, what can you do? What can you do about it? So I think those successful people, they, also, they, they always have their day-to-day things that they are delivering. Right, whether there is, if you're in academia, uh, research abstracts or papers or research projects, so on and so forth. 
but they they always have a big project they also have a ambitious idea and a big project that's uh, almost like a high risk high reward type of thing you can't uh dedicate every every day and every hour of your time for for such a high risk high reward but you can always have one one of those and if i think about those that uh, i admire they they always have something cooking that's that's uh above average and that has the potential to impact and change change the industry in our in our world right mm -hmm. absolutely the thinkers of the world for sure. Well, wonderful. Well, I do want to thank you for your time today. I know um, you're a busy person. So again, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, for our audience, again, this was Dr. Lynn Harris from Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you and let's keep in touch. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.